So verse number 12, chapter 2, just takes us right into this town called Pergamum. And uh, it starts off with, a, with a, uh, a description of Jesus that it comes back to at the very end of this particular section, all right? So again, all of these letters to the churches have a pattern to them. And the first part of that pattern is this picture of Jesus. And then he's going to speak to the church and he's going to say, all right, here's some things that you're doing well. And then he's going to say, here's some things that I have against you. And then there's the call to repentance, come back and be what you're supposed to be. And that's the benefit of, of, of studying Revelation as a church body is to just kind of listen to what he's saying to the churches of, of that time because things haven't changed. I mean, you, you listen to these words and you find yourself saying, oh yeah, that's really critical for the church in today's world. So he writes, uh, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, all right? So uh, quite often in the Bible, the sword is, is pictured as the offensive part of the work of God, all right? Uh, Wednesday nights, we're doing this whole series around the armor of God out of Ephesians 6. And so we, we recognize that when you and I go out into the world, we, we are really facing, in fact, there's really not a moment of our lives we're not facing a battle that's a spiritual battle. And our battle is not with flesh and blood. So the Bible constantly is saying, you have to put on the armor of God, right? That's defensive. But there's an offensive side to it, which is the sword. Always notice that when the sword of God is described, it's two-edged, right? Both sides of it. Very simply why. There's two parts to God's word, right? What are they? Law, gospel, right? Law, gospel. Each one of them has a, has a very specific purpose and function, the two of them go together. The intention of it is to say, this is how we fight uh, the war, is not, not the way flesh and blood fights it, but with a word of God that we really truly believe has the ability to cut to the very soul of human beings and change them. Do we believe this? This is the words of the one who holds that two-edged sword. Um, St. Augustine, um, and if you, if you know your history, one of the great saints of the Catholic Church, uh, in his time wrote a book that has become, uh, for, for, for readers, for historians, one of the all-time best, best books in terms of understanding what it means to hold the two-edged sword. His book is entitled, The City of God. Ever read it? The city of God. Here's why he wrote it. See if this sounds familiar to you. Islam was rising up as a force. And the Christian church had to figure out how are we going to fight Islam. And so the Christians got together and under the, the vestige of the Pope said, well, the way that we'll fight it is with physical swords. And the Crusades were an attempt to do what? To... to Wipe out Islam. Augustine, this little monk, said it'll never work. You cannot topple Islam with a sword. The only way to bring Islam to its knees is to bring it to its knees bowing before the one who we bow before, Jesus Christ. And so he writes this entire book just kind of, kind of laying down a foundation that says, for you and I as Christians, we need to just trust that the word of God 
has the ability, the capacity to change lives. To this day, you know, one of the things that I, I mean, I think we have to celebrate are those missionaries that are going into really the heart of Islam. And they're going in there uh, with, with, with Jesus to offer people who are under the law, right? They're under that law, the side of the sword that says there's gospel, there's grace in Jesus Christ. And uh, so this is what he's saying is this is the one who brings to you that sword and uses it in our lives, and in turn he puts it in our hands to use in the lives of others. Now in verse 13 he says, I know where you dwell. I know where your dwelling place is. And, and this is kind of an interesting phrase, where Satan's throne is. Where Satan's throne is. What is that? Why does he say that? If you go back to ancient Pergamum, a few things that we know about it. First of all, <clears throat> it's, it's, a, it's a fairly large city. At one time, uh, Pergamum was the capital of Asia and known for its library. Um, historians say its library probably held somewhere around 200,000 uh, publications. That doesn't seem like very much to us today, uh, but if you go back in history, the most important thing that a community uh, owned and protected and kept was its library. And the reason for that is the library is the place where you maintained your history. This is who we are, right? So uh, if you go back into olden days, when an army would attack a city, um, of course, they would be interested in tearing down houses and, and of course, trying to, to overcome the government of that time. But one of the things that enemies would do is they would find the library. And if they could burn the library to the ground, they would burn up literally the history of a people so that generations later, do, do the people that came out of that um, nation even know who they are? No. They've lost that sense of identity and purpose and history. This is why, by the way, the Hebrews uh, figured out that it was important to put into their, the lives of their kids the history, the story of God at a very early age. And why the Jews, would they would raise up their, their children, would cause them to, to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, right? So um, when our kids in confirmation class are like, I have to memorize three verses. <laughs> That's so much. How can I do it? I'm like, well, you want to do it the Jewish way? <laughs> But that's why they did it is that these periods of exile, when everything is burned to the ground, the Jews never lose their story. They know who they are because it lives inside of them. And so um, you have this place, Pergamum, that's kind of the center at one time of, of, of uh, the, the holdings that define the history of the nation of Rome, right? It's the capital city. Um, so it's a, it's a fairly significant city. Historically, some people believe that parchment was actually discovered there, and uh, that's the first place that we get parchment. It's a place that had a number of different temples, okay? Last week, we talked about the temples in Smyrna. Pergamum is about 50 miles north of Smyrna. It's still in, it's still in Turkey, right? So if you could go back and look at the ancient city, you would find an altar to Zeus. You would find an altar to Athene the love goddess, an altar to Dionysus. And this is the one that I think is most important given the words that are spoken by Jesus to the church in Pergamum. I know where you dwell, 
where Satan has his throne. One of the things that Pergamum was known for is they had a really large altar to Asclepius. Okay? And if you go back and you know your Greek, Greek history and mythology, Asclepius was the serpent god, the snake god. That's why I had you tell snake stories today. Okay? And the snake was what? The symbol for healing. And so you had a rather large medical community in Pergamum. And I always ask myself this question, how is it that Satan manages to consistently fool people into thinking, I'm good. I'm something good. Had that conversation this past week. Lady came in my office and she says, you know what? Uh, I have some friends and they think that they're hearing ghosts, but they're good ghosts. I'm like, oh, there's only one good ghost. That's the Holy Ghost. I said, it's really not a ghost. This is the Spirit of God, right? And if you look at the whole order of creation, you don't have that many things that are created, right? You have spirit beings, angels. You have the physical earth and the physical universe, the creation on the earth, that's it. When people talk about ghosts, poltergeists, etc., what are you talking about? Angels, fallen ones, demons. Do they pose as good? Absolutely, always. Satan constantly is saying, hey, you want something good? Healing. Okay. Uh, Modern-day Wicca. You ever meet a, a modern-day witch? A Wiccan? It's kind of interesting to have a, a conversation with a, with a Wiccan. Right? You're like, hey, where's your broom? Where's your broom, man? I want to ride it. And I want to get that thing going. How fast is it? Well, no, they don't have brooms, right? Because they're modern-day witches. Here's what they'll say to you. I'm a good witch. Right? What we do is we, we practice healing. Wiccans, witches, say our goal is not harm to human beings, but what? To heal and to preserve the earth. And so they pose as something very good. I mean, that's, that's what a Wiccan would say. Uh, so it's not, it's not crazy to think about a, a, a day and age where you have this city that has this, this altar to Asclepius, the, the snake god, the serpent god, and a school of medicine in it that's rather large. And I believe that, that a big part of why um, they are designated by Jesus as that place where Satan has his throne, his altar, is there's the snake, right? By the way, sidebar question for you. Where does that snake show up in the United States? Where do you see him? Yeah. Med medicine, right? It's kind of interesting. We go in and we see that little medical symbol. Where does it trace back to? Sclopius, right? Second question for you, a little sidebar. Are there any snake stories in the Bible? Some really good snake stories in the Bible, right? And I always think about this, that um, in contrast to Sclopius, this snake, you have this snake story over in the book of Numbers that um, I think better helps us take a look at what the one with the two-edged sword would be saying to the people living in Pergamum because part of their work is to, is to uncover with the truth of God, right? This, this snake business, this healing business, these gods, they're not God and there is no healing in them, right? So um, flip over for just a minute. I think you'll find this fascinating to uh, Numbers. I find it fascinating. Chapter 21, where we get this, this uh, snake story, okay? This one's better than mine. Verse number four, 
chapter 21, book of Numbers. It says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Are we there yet? And the people spoke against God and against Moses. We should be there. Why have you brought us up to Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. By the way, what was that worthless food that they loathed? The manna of God. Okay. Can you imagine that we would loathe the very thing God gives us to, to, to provide for us? But they did. Not that I've ever done that. I've never, I've never loathed the provisions of God. Yes, we do. We actually do. We actually find ourselves upset with God. Why can't I have that? Why, why shouldn't I have that? God says, I'm providing for you, right? So they loathe the thing that God... So verse number six, this is how God acts. The Lord sent fiery serpents amongst the people, and they bit the people so that many people in Israel died. See, you have all these stories that make you stop and be like, what? What is God doing? God says, snakes, I've got a job for you. Go start biting my people. And... Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. You look at you look at what people say about this particular type of snake. We we don't know what kind of snake it is, but it says fiery. That could either refer to the color of the snake, right, or it could refer to the to the what what it feels like when you get bit by it. And so, a lot of people say these are probably asps. And when an asp bites you, its poison infects you quickly and you die, right? But it burns when it bites, all right? So you have these fiery serpents that are going out, biting the people of Israel. Does that sound like God? See, this is, what, this is why as Christians get into such trouble out in the world. People are like, what in the kind of God do you have? And he just commands snakes and they go start biting you and they kill you. Like, yep, that's the kind of God we follow. Why does he do that? Out of mercy and love. See, the world cannot get this. They're like, no, that's not mercy and love. That's bad. Like, no, it's good. Why? Because the people of Israel, what will they do? They'll continue to move away from God until what? Until they're broken. That's like all of us. Two-edged sword. What does the law do? Breaks us. Causes us to say, you know what? What are we going to do about these snakes? We have nothing we can do. Right? So we got to go before God. So they did. Verse 7 says, The people came to Moses and said, We've sinned against you, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. This is really, really interesting to me. Look at this. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. A serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. A couple of fun things out of that story is, number one, God says no. He does it in the book of Genesis right away. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree. The first thing that they want is what? Put it back to the way it was. We're sorry. Whoops. We're sorry. Oh, my goodness. Did we eat that fruit? Just put it back the way it was. God says no. And he, he puts literally a curse upon his creation. Why? Because he knows Adam and Eve, and he knows the offspring of Adam and Eve, and he knows us. And if he just puts it back the way it was, guess what we'll do? We'll keep doing that same thing over and over and over and over again. He goes, no, I'm going to put a curse upon life itself so that you figure out that there is no hope, there is no healing, there is no, there is no sense of well-being except through me. You're not going to be able to find it in the world. In the world, the, the, you're, you're going to get rocked. You know, Tet was sharing with me this weekend. He says, my parents, you know, when the, when the earthquake hit Japan, everything rocked. Thousands of people killed a tsunami. Bam! 
kill 70,000 people. Bam. Who did that? God. What? Yep, he makes snakes bite people. He makes tsunamis go boom like that. He makes the earth shake like that. When did he do that? Genesis chapter 3. There's a curse placed upon the world. Why? Because I can't depend upon anything. A, a tsunami? How do you stop that? How do you prepare for it? You can't. That's the whole point of it. God says you must live in me. If a tornado smacks you and you get killed, that's my plan for your life. That's my purpose for your life. Up until that point in time, I've used you in my kingdom. That's it. Because it's not about this life. It's not about this world. What's it about? The life to come. And so while you're alive on this earth, there's only two couple of things that matter is just live in me, live out my purpose in me. And when that day comes, guess what? Doesn't matter what it is, I'm bringing you home. So live in me. All right? So this is God's answer to the people. Take away those stinking snakes. We don't like them. They bite, they hurt, they kill you. God says, nope. I want to do something different. He takes a pole and he says, I want you to make a bronze serpent. I always, I always wish that the medical community instead of Asclepius had this particular snake on their pole. They don't. But the, the point of the pole, right, is to indicate that this snake will die on a pole. When will that happen? At the cross. The cross will be, lift up that pole with that snake on it. People will look at it in faith, believe, trust me, and they won't die when they're bit by the snake. He's just putting a sign in front of them. In fact, literally in the Hebrew, the term pole means sign. Miracle. It points forward to the miracle that's to come through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Already back in the time of Moses, he's saying, here's my snake story for you. There's a snake, all right. Someone who comes and says, I'm good. Someone who says, there's, there's healing through me and there's not. Guess what I'm going to do? Stomp out that snake and kill it. So lift it up on the pole. And let the people look at it in faith, in trust, and believe in me. That's Pergamum. He's saying, that's who I want you to be, church. I want you to be a church that exposes the lie of Satan that there is healing and good through him. There is no good. And know that the only good that will come is when the snake is killed on the pole of the cross. And that is who you're to be, church in Pergamum. Come back over to the Revelation. Okay. This is the commendation that he gives to them. You dwell there where Satan has his throne, yet here's who you are. You're a people who hold fast my name. Okay? You're a people who full, hold fast my name. Now, I want you to just listen to these words. You don't have to look them up, but I want you to listen to them. What does it mean for us to hold fast the name of God? It doesn't mean, and excuse me for getting a little bit excited about this, because I do. It doesn't mean we just walk around going, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Okay. It doesn't mean we just say, blah, 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 the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And I've done it before. I've done it. Sometimes I forget that the people who wrote the Apostles' Creed, many of them paid for that with their blood. They were killed for doing that. Because they lived in an era when to say 
to confess Jesus Christ as God, both fully divine and human and fully human at the same time, would cost you your life. And so when we say the Apostles' Creed and we stand up and, and we say, here, here world is what we believe. I believe in Jesus Christ. We're lifting up his name. This is the way Paul says it. And I just want you to listen to these words in, in the book of, of Romans chapter 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, but with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Okay, what's he saying? He's taking us all the way to that fateful day in a school cafeteria when a couple of kids came walking in with guns. And what has become commonplace now in America was shocking to us when those two boys walked into that high school in Colorado and started shooting. And the story comes out of that of the young lady under the desk and the young boy looks under and sees her and says, do you believe in Jesus? And there's that moment in her life. You know, when you uh, get confirmed, there's a rite of confirmation. And um, in that rite of confirmation, we stand up in front of people. We not only speak the Apostles' Creed, but these words are spoken to the confirmant. Do you believe... In Jesus Christ. And will you suffer all, even death, to uphold his name? You know, sometimes we just say, oh yeah, yep, give me the carnation. I need the carnation there. Smile for the picture. Boom! She's dead. But she confessed with her mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and she believed in her heart. And in that instant, her body stopped working and her soul was with God. And so what he is saying here in Revelation is, this is who you are. You're a body of people that are living where Satan has his throne. In a very corrupt town where emperor worship was demanded, you're the body of people who are saying, I will give all to uphold the name of Jesus Christ and his name alone should it cost me my life. And in fact, it did cost many of them their lives. Do you know of all the martyrs <clears throat> that died in the early Christian era, there's only one whose name is actually recorded in the scriptures. Thousands and thousands died. I suppose we could, we could put Stephen into that, that category of, of martyrs, but the one martyr that's mentioned by name is right here. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. All of that I kind of take in and I think, okay, there's, this, there's the guy whose name is mentioned, Antipas. We don't know anything about him historically. There are stories about him extra-biblically that are not necessarily reliable historically. So we can make up things about him or we can extrapolate things about him. Here's all we know is he was a faithful witness. The term witness, martureo, 
is the word that we get our, our English term martyr from, right? He was my famous martyreo. He gave testimony to who I am in a public setting where that could cost your very life. Here's what I think about is it's very easy for the Church of Jesus Christ to want to blend into its culture, fit into its culture. Because we don't want to be looked at as weird or crazy. And it's certainly easy in our own lives to do the exact same thing, to say, you know what, I don't want to stand out, I want to fit in, and so what do we do? We begin to make compromises in our life. I want to follow you, Jesus. Yes, I do. All my life, I'm all in. But I'm not sure I want to speak up for you here in this setting. And I'm not sure I want to give testimony. And I think about um, two little girls that are being raised up, you know, and, and they're our, our grandkids. And another one we're getting ready to go see in Texas. And the world that they're growing up in. And how often we're put into these positions where will I testify or will I be, remain silent? Hey, let's go do this. Do I testify? Do I say no? That's not of God. When I, I'm asked out on that date by, he's, he's hot. You know, that's great. But as I get to dating him, do I testify? Do I let him know? You get me, you get Jesus. That's the deal. Right? Um, I believe that part of living out our lives as, as followers of Jesus Christ is what? Is, is being able to say in those instances where it's hard. I, listen, I don't want to look weird. I'm not different than you. But I, I think that, that um, in those instances where, where it's called for, guess what? Give tes testimony. I belong to him. You get me, you get him. It doesn't matter what it costs me. That's who I'm going to be. That's how I'm going to live. And so you have this, this um, um, Jesus speaking to the, to the body in Pergamum saying, this is what you do well. You're, you're testifiers to who I am in a place where literally Satan is the one who is trying to hold reign. But, verse 14, I have a few things against you. So what does he have against them? I, I, I tend to learn more from, from, well, I guess you learn both sides of it, but I learn a lot from these words because they smack into the church today. Here's what he says. You have some people in the church who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. What's that? So to get that, remember, Revelation gets a lot of its ink from the Old Testament. It goes back into those stories and it says, what happened then is happening now. We do the same thing. We look at Revelation and we go, What's happening? what happened then? Is happening now. Balaam and Balak are alive and well in the church today. So who are they? Balaam and Balak. Okay. Interestingly, their story follows the snake story. It's in Numbers chapter 22. Take a quick look. I I, by the way, I love this story. It says, uh, verse number 122, Then the people of Israel set out. They camped in the plains of Moab, 
beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab, in fact, was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And so Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, Epthor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, People has come out of Egypt, they cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite of me. Come, curse this people, since they are so mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. This is the scene that we're, we're looking at, is Israel has come out of the wilderness. Moses is dead, and we have them now getting ready to cross over to the Jordan and into the land of Canaan, and Joshua is leading them. Okay. As Israel crosses into the promised land, it's inhabited. right? So God says, I'm going to give you this land, and all the Christians or the followers of, of God at that time, they say, yeah, but there's people living in it. God says, that's right. We're going to displace them. And so if you can imagine, here comes Israel, about 2 million people, right? They're carrying this silly-looking box, right? Everybody's like, who are those guys with the box? They're like, well, that, that would be Israel. It's the Ark of the Covenant, right? So do they really need a lot of weapons? Trumpets will do, right? They, what do they got? They got the presence of God. And they've got a host army, and nobody can stop them. So everywhere they go, they come walking in, and boom, flatten, flatten, flatten. So pretty soon, guess what word gets around? Hey, if you see two million people coming your way with a silly-looking box, run, right? So you got, you've got this guy named Balak, who is the king of Moab. He's got his binoculars out, and he goes, uh-oh, they're coming our way. What are we going to do? So they had a little meeting. They, have, they form a, a committee. We don't call them committees here at Peace. They call them teams. They get a team. This is the Stop the Israelite Horde team, right? Because, uh, I mean, that's what, that's what he says. He's like, they're like, like, a dog, like an ox licks up grass. That's what's going to happen to us unless we do something. And they, they call this guy Balaam. They say, well, go to Balaam. Because here's, here's the deal. Balaam, here's what we know about him. If he puts a curse on someone, they get cursed. If he puts a blessing on them, they get blessed. Go get them. We'll pay him some money. He can curse these people, and we'll be good to go. Now, Balaam is a very fascinating character in the Old Testament. He shows up in Revelation very, very clearly and intentionally. Why? Who was he? We don't know a lot about his origins. There, he does not. They don't designate here. He's not a king, right? He he's somebody who actually, as we read this story, listens to God but doesn't listen to God. He doesn't have a, you don't see his pedigree, so we don't, we don't, you find yourself asking the question, was he or was he not a God-fearer? Did he actually 
Did he know God? Who was he? Balaam. Well, you decide for yourself. Here's his story. Take a look at this. Verse 7, so the elders of Moab, the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination. Okay, we've got our money. He's a diviner. That's what they called him. Meaning what he's a spiritualist. He has connection with whatever is up there. So you go get him and get this, this curse paid for. So they came to Balaam and they gave Balak's message and he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. See what he does? They go, here's some money. Show me the money. Oh, here it is. All right, you guys stay here. I'm going to go inquire of the Lord. Now, does it mean that he's a follower of God? Keep reading. You decide. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God. Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, he sent me saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt and it covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam arose in the morning and he said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. All right, so he's, here's the money. He says, no. Talked to God last night. We had a chat. He says, forget it. You guys go home. You guys are going to get licked up. You, you guys are doomed. So have a nice day. Right? So refuses, all right? So is he a follower of God or is he not a follower of God? You decide. Keep reading. Once, once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balak and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing hinder you from coming to me. For surely I will do you great honor and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come curse this people for me. So what did they do? They raised the ante. Whatever you want. Here's a blank check from Moab. You fill it in, just come curse these people. What does Balaam do? Verse 18, Balaam answered. He said to the servants of Balak, I don't care if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold. I couldn't do that. Now look at these words. Beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. If you met him in the street and you said, Hey, Balaam, you a follower of God? What would he tell you? I listened to God. I conferred with God. I turned the money down for God. I'm God's guy. Is he? Keep reading. You decide. Verse 20, God came to Balaam at night. This is where it gets really interesting. And he said to him, if the men, and I want you to pay attention to these words and the very next section because they're contrastive words. God came to Balaam at night and said, If the men have come to call you, rise and go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. So God said to him, If they come, rise, go, only do what I tell you. Now, very next words get confusing. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. What? God came to him and said, you know what? 
If they come to you, rise, go with them, but only do what I say. So he did. He got up. He went with them. God was angry with him. What's going on? What does God look at when he sees you and I saying to him, Lord, Lord, what does he look at? I confess you with my mouth. That's great. Do you believe in your heart? He looks at this guy, Balaam, and guess what Balaam has? Unfortunately, Balaam has a divided heart. A heart that says, Lord, Lord, God, I will do what you want me to do. But a heart that is intent on doing, guess what? What I want to do. Split heart, Balaam has. And God sees that heart. And he literally becomes angry at Balaam because guess what Balaam does? This is that scene of the Bible where Balaam's donkey, right, gets up and talks to him. And remember, he beats the donkey. God says, why are you beating the donkey? You beat the donkey three times. Why are you beating the donkey? And remember what Balaam does is he literally teaches, I'm a follower of God, but he literally teaches Balak how to trick Israel into sin. And so he says, on the one hand, he says, no, I won't put a curse on them. I'm not going to take your money, but here's what I will do is I'll show you how to actually get them into trouble. And what Balak does is he teaches them how to, to, to cause the people of Israel to begin eating unclean food and practicing sexual immorality. He becomes a stumbling block for God. So, pull back and ask yourself the question, who is Balaam in Revelation? Balaam represents, right, he's a symbol that represents people inside of the church who on one hand say, got to follow God, got to do it his way, but on the other hand, make compromises and decide for themselves, but you know what? It's okay to do it this way when it is not. It's against God. Right? And so what is God looking at? God isn't looking at our outside. Hey, I'll follow you, God. He's looking at the intent of our heart. He is double-hearted. I want to follow God, but I also want to follow the ways of the world. I want to follow God, but guess what? These people need my help. And so he literally puts a stumbling block in front of Israel. Here's what he's saying is there are people in the church. Things haven't changed who will say to you, this is okay when God has said it is not okay. All right? So, uh, do we see this in the church today? Very clearly. Hey, guess what? I'm a homosexual. I want to get married in the church. Will you marry me? There's a lot of people who would say, guess what? Absolutely. Nothing wrong with that. God made you the way that you are. You have these feelings. He has these feelings. You're going to come together blessed by God. Balaam is in the church. We're going to follow God, but guess what we're not going to use? Remember how this thing started off? Two-edged sword. Law, gospel, the truth. It may cut, but it's still truth, right? Now, does that mean the church is supposed to, what, persecute homosexuals and tell them, oh, my goodness? No. We're, we're called to love them. Serve them. Seek to bring them to Jesus Christ. Right? 
But the truth is the truth, and when Balaam is in the church, what Balaam is always trying to do is make that which God has said is, is not good, takes us away from him, look like it's good. That's Pergamum. That's the snake. That's what the snake does. I'm bringing healing. I bring good. And Balaam does the same. This is right. This is good. We're of God. And so you have in both instances in the church of Pergamum, you have this church that's being called to do it, to raise up and to stand upon the truth of Jesus Christ. Will the church that does that be persecuted? Absolutely yes. All right. Um, I'll, I'm going to close off on this note. Do I think the church of Jesus Christ, us, today, will be in, increasingly persecuted for holding on to the truth? Yes, I do. I truly do. But... Listen to the words of God here who says, don't let Balaam hold court in the church. There's not this way and this way. There's one way, and it's God's way. Hold on to that truth. And he's saying to this church, if you do not repent of letting Balaam hold court in the church, guess what I will do? I will come to you. I will come to you, and I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. All right, we'll pick up there next week. Let's pray. Lord God.